Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. And joining me today to discuss his latest book is indeed Neil Ferguson. He's the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and an acclaimed historian who's written books on everything from finance and social networks to Henry Kissinger and the British Empire. Last year was an unprecedented time, or so it seemed. As COVID-19 spread across the world, public officials cited the unique threat of the virus to justify extreme interventions in daily life. And then civil unrest and violence exploded in U.S. cities in a kind of political or social contagion that accompanied the public health emergency. It was certainly a troubling year. As Neil's book shows, however, disasters and crises are never entirely unprecedented. Political and natural catastrophes are often entwined, and we should try to understand the causes and characteristics of past calamities to help us grasp today's and perhaps better prepare for future disasters. In his new book called Doom, he investigates the common features of geological and atmospheric, political and geopolitical, biological and technological disasters with that goal in mind. Throughout our conversation, please feel free to submit your questions on whatever platform you're watching us on, and we'll do our best to get to as many as we can. So Neil, thanks very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to join you, Brian. Um, You analyze in Doom dozens of historical disasters. These range from the Black Death during the 14th century and the Napoleonic Wars of the 19th century to the Titanic sinking in 1911 and the Great Famine in Mao's China during the 20th century. These events happened across many different times and places, but what are the common features in your view, the recurring patterns, and where does COVID-19, the crisis surrounding that, rank among the disasters you discussed? Yes, it might seem a rather eclectic uh, array of, of unfortunate events, and you might wonder what business I have bringing wars and, and pandemics together with earthquakes and, and, and wildfires. But there, there are a couple of things that I think all disasters have in common, certainly the kinds of disaster that I'm interested in. The obvious one is excess mortality, a sudden increase in uh, uh, mortality above what might have been expected based on our relatively recent experience, uh, a sudden increase in the probability of, of, of premature death. And, and that, that, that's the same whether you're con- confronted by a war or a, a pandemic. And, and I make the argument, which is really borrowed from Amartya Sen's argument about famines, that the distinction between a natural and a man-made catastrophe is a false dichotomy. In many ways, COVID-19 illustrates that really well, even if you don't believe the lab leak hypothesis, though that's looking more and more uh, likely as an explanation of the origins of the pandemic. So that's that's the first idea, that we really can and should think about pandemics and wars uh, in the same within the same framework. The second point that, that hit me when I was reading a book about the outbreak of World War I uh, Céline's, uh, Fernand Céline's extraordinary account at the beginning of uh, Voyage au bout, au bout de la Nuit, it's the fact that to the individual caught up in a disaster, there is a, a, a strange sense of unreality. And the unreality comes partly from 
the sense that it can't possibly be happening to you. Uh, it might possibly be happening to somebody else, but it can't really kill you. And that, that's a really important and curious human quirk. We struggle a bit to grasp the idea of a suddenly increased probability of mortality that applies to us. And the other thing I think is quite important, that's the sense of confusion, that one one is struggling to make sense of this unfolding disaster, because it is very unfamiliar. It's a new kind of experience. Not many of us get to experience multiple disasters. Sometimes uh, it happens. I think my grandfather went through a whole succession of disasters, beginning with the the First World War, but most of us get one big disaster, or maybe two. When it happens, you're really thrown, uh, no matter how well-educated you think you are. So those are important common factors, and they explain a lot about our difficulty in dealing with disaster, even when we've attained much higher levels of scientific education than, say, medieval peasants. Uh, you discuss uh, three different types of disasters in the book, black swans, gray rhinos, and dragon kings. Uh, what are these and what distinguishes them? And could you just give a, a few brief examples of each? It sounds like a rather strange zoo, doesn't it? Uh, the, the idea here, these are other people's ideas that I've, I've brought under uh, one zoological roof, is that disasters can appear a little bit like the, the grey rhino that you see trundling towards you uh, across the Serengeti. Uh, you you kind of know it's coming for you and you have some warning because you see it from some distance. And and this is an idea uh, that uh, that characterizes a lot of disasters, that we, we, we see them coming. It's not as if a pandemic was wholly unpredictable. People have been predicting a major pandemic for decades. And in fact, I list all the different TED Talks and op-eds and books that made the prediction that there would be a major pandemic. And it, it's, it's dozens of them. Uh, so that's the grey rhino. The odd thing is that when a grey rhino actually hits you, when the predicted disaster happens, a strange metamorphosis occurs and it's sort of suddenly a black swan and everybody's calling it unprecedented. Uh, this is a year like no other. I heard that many times at the end of 2020. Uh, and and we, we act surprised as if nobody could possibly have foreseen this. Uh, the black swan is a, an idea Nassim Taleb pioneered in a book of that name some years ago. It's it's the thing that you really can't foresee because it lies outside your your range of experience and also your your kind of distribution of probabilities. Uh, so that's an oddity that that something that we talked about for years when it actually happened uh, in early 2020 to most people completely by surprise, as if we hadn't had all those grey rhino TED Talks telling us it was coming. Uh, the final idea is the Dragon King. Some disasters kill a lot of people, but don't have very major consequences. A good example of this is the 1957-58 influenza pandemic, which almost nobody remembers, including people who were around at the time, killed a proportion of the world's population not that different from COVID. Uh, but its consequences you'd struggle to find in any history book. It's a sort of non-event. Other events kill a lot of people, 
and have huge consequences. And that's where this notion of a dragon king, which I borrowed from Didier Sornet, comes in. It's the idea of an event that's sort of so huge that it lies beyond even a, a parallel distribution. And I think the First World War is a good example of this, because the First World War is significant not just because of the 10 million plus people who died in, in conventional warfare. It's significant because of all the consequences that followed from it, like the Russian Revolution and the breakup of the three empires of, of Central and Eastern Europe. So those are the three creatures that I use to try to organize um, a, a typology of disaster. Uh, the idea being that, that excess mortality alone doesn't really uh, determine the historical significance of an event. Uh, people naturally attribute disasters, both human-caused and natural or geological or um, whatever, to poor leadership. They, they blame the leaders in charge. But in one of your chapters, you, you write quite interestingly that the point of failure during a catastrophe is often not at the top, but in the middle, in a combination of errors you know, committed by technical operators or middle managers. Um, what, what are some historical examples of this? And, and in your view, was that the case in our response to COVID-19 as well? Well, this idea came from reading Richard Feynman's account of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster in 1986. Uh, Feynman was a brilliant Caltech physicist who got brought into the official inquiry and slightly disrupted it with his unorthodox, very non-Washington modes of inquiry. The, the, the key point about uh, the space shuttle disaster was um, that the point of failure was in the middle of the NASA bureaucracy. Now, the press corps, when the disaster happened, did what it always does. It tried to pin responsibility on the president. And so there was a story that briefly did the rounds that the space shuttle launch had been hurried. It had been uh, moved ahead uh, too fast because Reagan wanted to mention it in his State of the Union. This was a total non-story. It fell apart uh, pretty quickly. Uh, but what had gone wrong? That was less obvious. Now, it's true that make it clear, this wasn't a huge disaster in terms of loss of life. Only seven people died, the crew of the Challenger. But it was a very big disaster in terms of its impact on public consciousness. And I don't know, you may remember watching it on television. Many people watched the launch live and were sort of stunned to see the thing blow up seconds after launch. Anyway, Feynman delved into the, the innards of NASA. And he found to his surprise that the engineers at NASA had known all along that there was a one in a hundred chance the thing would blow up. I mean, this was this was clear to the engineers. So it was clearly only a matter of time until something like this happened because they were doing regular space shuttle launches at that point. But somewhere in the middle of the NASA bureaucracy, a mysterious figure, Mr. Kingsbury, had decided that it would be better to report that as one in a hundred thousand rather than one in a hundred. And, and Feynman's argument is that ultimately it was the NASA bureaucracy's refusal to admit uh, that the risk was one in a hundred that led to the disaster. Um, and there's a nice bit in Feynman's account where the, the engineers are complaining they could never get a meeting with Mr. Kingsbury. And for me, Mr. Kingsbury is a sort of uh, a symbolic figure, uh, maybe a little bit like Woody Allen Zelig. He's always there somewhere, kind of in the uh, the, the middle of the, the management structure, just quietly changing the, the odds of, of failure in ways that are satisfying bureaucratically, but ultimately disastrous. I looked at the Titanic in a similar kind of spirit. At the time the, the ship went down, everybody 
hated on the 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 uh, chairman of the White Star Line, whose life was more or less destroyed by the disaster. He basically became a recluse uh, in uh, on the coast of Ireland and scarcely spoke. But it it wasn't his fault that such a large number of passengers drowned. And if you want to know whose fault it was, you have to buy the book. I've, I've learned not to give everything away in these calls, but but it's not what you think because the Titanic has had a whole series of, of legend-like explanations attached to it, uh, not least in the famous movie. Um, the reality is once again, one of those little mini- middle management mishaps that proved disastrous. And, and how do you see this in the context of COVID-19? Do you think that, that, pattern played itself out in the current crisis as well? I, it did, except that this time the, the, the story that it was all the president's fault has really stuck. And you can see why, because Trump made so many errors of judgment and said so many ludicrous things over the course of 2020 that for most liberal journalists, it was just a natural reflex to to blame it on him. And you may remember Jim Fallows writing a piece in The Atlantic saying that essentially the president was like the pilot of an aircraft, and if the aircraft crashed, it was pilot error. I must admit, I, I read this piece, and as I was reading it, I was thinking, no, this is this is wrong. Uh, and the reason it's wrong is that, that being president of the United States is nothing like being a pilot, not not even remotely, because you're you're sitting atop this enormously complex bureaucracy, and and this has been true for decades. When decisions get to the Oval Office, they've already been kind of fought over at uh, multiple levels of the bureaucracy, all the way up to to the cabinet level. So I thought that was a kind of misunderstanding of the nature of presidential power. And then I thought a bit more about it, and I realized that you could apply the Feynman principle. And the way you do it is this. Why exactly did the U.S. suffer very high excess mortality? Why have we got maybe 600,000 deaths that happened prematurely because of the pandemic? And the answers to that, that question go something like this. First, because CDC utterly failed to ramp up testing, in fact, made testing harder than it needed to be. So nobody knew right into April or May who had COVID in the United States. Secondly, there was no attempt to create a contact tracing app of the sort that they used in places like South Korea and more recently Taiwan. That that wasn't even seriously attempted by the big tech companies. Thirdly, there was a total failure to protect the vulnerable, particularly in elderly care homes. And that, again, happened at the state level. Uh, that, was, that was really a failure of state governments. And, and finally, there was no effective enforcement of quarantines at any point, uh, so that people who were potentially infected just basically were able to do what they liked. So all the things that really explain the excess mortality don't seem to me to be uh, attributable to presidential decisions. This is not to exonerate Trump or, or defend him. He made, as I said, numerous errors of judgment. It's just that I don't think his errors of judgment were responsible for a really significant percentage of the, the death toll. The truth is, what happened in the US last year, and it was true in the UK, and it was true in multiple Western countries, including countries without populist leaders, was a terrible failure of the public health bureaucracy, which had on paper a pandemic preparedness plan uh, of numerous plans in the case of the US. It's just that none of those plans worked. If we tell ourselves that it was all the president's fault and getting a new president has solved the problem, and I've heard this argument made, then the next disaster, whatever form it takes, will, will probably expose a similar failure in the bureaucracy in a different 
part of the government. So this is a really important argument. It's not a popular one because nobody wants to feel as if they're uh, letting Trump off the hook. But in reality, if we just say to ourselves, if only Joe Biden had been president a year earlier, it would have been fine, then we really are deluding ourselves. By the way, this kind of argument was recently made in the UK by Dominic Cummings, the former advisor to Boris Johnson, whose critique in a long Twitter thread and then in his testimony to parliamentary committee was basically this, that the entire system had failed, not just the elected politicians, not specifically the prime minister, but the civil service had failed and the public health experts had failed. And I think the same story is, in fact, true in the United States. And we should realize that. Um, you, you note in the book that politicians in democratic societies are structurally disincentivized from dealing with tail risks, unlikely tail risks anyway, long-term problems. Um, can you explain a bit why you, you see that as the case? And what's the alternative if we can't trust uh, political leaders or, or society leaders to prepare us adequately for disaster? What's, what's the alternative if there is any? Well, I think there are two problems that democracies face. One is what Henry Kissinger called the problem of conjecture, which is that if you are, as a leader, confronted with a possibility of a disaster, and uh, you're told that by taking early but costly action, you can preempt it and avoid it, or alternatively do nothing, and you might get away with it because it might not happen, there's not certain to happen. It's very tempting to go for option two and kick the can down the road. Why? Because the the costs of option one uh, are not likely to get you rewarded politically. People don't really vote for leaders who've averted disasters. There's no gratitude for a disaster that didn't happen. And this is, I think, a fundamental problem of incentives in, in democracy. Uh, we, we never really discuss why there wasn't another 9-11. Uh, but it's actually a really interesting question, why there were no subsequent large-scale terrorist attacks in the United States, and it's been 20 years. Uh, and, and nobody certainly gets any credit for that, uh, even if we know why it happened. So I think that's part of the reason. The other part of the reason is that in nearly all democracies, a large and complex bureaucratic state has evolved, particularly in the last 50 years, much larger than was the case 100 years ago. And these bureaucracies have their own pathologies. They're very good uh, at the uh, CYA approach to disaster uh, preparedness. That's the cover your ass approach, where they produce preparedness plans that run for pages and pages, usually with an accompanying PowerPoint deck. And it looks as if the problem has been addressed. And I think this is very clear in the case of, of COVID. There, there were numerous pandemics preparedness plans from multiple agencies. There was even an assistant secretary for preparedness. And there's this great 2019 survey that the Economist Intelligence Unit publishes in concert with Johns Hopkins saying that the US is the best prepared country in the world for a pandemic with the UK in second place. Uh, and of course, these preparations turned out to be pretty much worthless when a, an actual pandemic happened. So that's the other thing. Now, what can we do about this? I think the wrong answer to that question is we need to heed every Cassandra who has a prophecy of doom. 
one of the key points about this book is you can't predict the big disasters. They just don't lie in that realm where you can say with confidence, there's going to be a pandemic in 2020. You, you can't really get much beyond there's going to be a pandemic. They can't, that, that there's going to be a big earthquake in California one day. But anybody who tells you with great confidence that they know when it's going to be is probably a snake oil uh, salesperson. So I think the wrong approach is to say we need to heed every Cassandra and be prepared for every contingency. That's the kind of thing that bureaucracies find appealing. But but in truth, you could waste an unreasonable uh, amount of resources preparing for everything from the asteroid hitting the planet uh, to the zombie apocalypse. So the right approach, and this is the answer to your question, is to emphasize rapid reaction. Because the countries that got this right, or at least did best, Taiwan, South Korea, to some extent Israel, the countries that got this right acted very quickly. And we were slow. And I think what we need to emphasize is not powers of prophecy, but rapidity of reaction. I was very impressed when I was in Taiwan at the beginning of 2020 by the fact that they were sort of ready for all kinds of problems from China, including election interference at that time as they were running an election. But they were quick on the draw when the, there was this story about a new disease in Wuhan that mysteriously, according to the Chinese authorities, wasn't being transmitted from human to human. They kind of just didn't believe that and acted very swiftly to make sure that they could limit the spread of the virus uh, within Taiwan. So I, I think that's the key. And our bureaucracies are very slow in responding uh, because that's really the way they've they've evolved. Great at the preparedness plan, very bad at executing it. I think that's fixable, but not if we learn the wrong lessons from 2020, which I think we're in the process of doing. Uh, you know, the vaccination effort uh, shows, though, that I think free economies um, have certain advantages. You know, the U.S. and the U.K. were really at the forefront of developing the most effective vaccines, and and it was thriving and in innovative private industries with government help in this case that that uh, may have provided us our exit strategy from the you know from the pandemic. Yeah, uh, if you're going to get one thing right in a if you're going to get one thing right in a pandemic, get vaccination right. And as I was writing the book, remember books aren't like newspapers. So it really was kind of finished in August and proofs were finalized in, in, I guess, October. It was before the phase three results came out from Pfizer and Moderna. But my hunch then was, and it proved to be right, that the Western vaccines would be a lot better than the Chinese vaccines. And the Chinese promises to save the world with their vaccines, I regarded with great, and it turned out, justified scepticism. The Moderna and Pfizer results were even better than I'd expected. Uh, but they do illustrate the importance of not having a highly centralised approach to problems of public health. And the fact that there is still a very competitive biotech industry explains why mRNA vaccines exist. Uh, and those people who kind of look longingly at China in mid-2020 say, oh, if only we could be like them, I think really misunderstood the nature of the crisis, which after all had originated in China for a pretty good reason. Um, one of your most interesting chapters is on social networks. And you've written a, a previous book on this. Um, that the structure of social and biological networks, you know, affect, affects transition patterns in everything from ideas to viruses. Um, I, you know, I think social media was, was really instrumental in getting 
international protests going over racial uh, or at least perceived racial injustice in America, uh, while COVID-19 containment efforts, you, you know, involved massive interventions to disrupt the networks, the social networks that convey the virus. I, I wonder if there's a way to think about um, network science and networks to minimize the risks of either informational pandemics or biological pandemics? Well, it's a key question. My last book, The Square and the Tower, was about the kind of monsters that we've created that now dominate our our public sphere. And these are network platforms uh, whose uh, business model, uh, that's to sell ads, necessitates getting people's eyeballs on screens for as long as possible. And that uh, actually leads to algorithms that prioritize fake fake news and extreme views and, and conspiracy theories. Now, this was something that I was deeply concerned about, really, from, from 2016, 2017, when I, I wrote that book. And I think our failure to address that problem left us very vulnerable to the infodemic that has ultimately made it very difficult for the US to, to defeat COVID-19. I mean, if, if there is a significant holdout of 25% or so of the population who just won't get vaccinated, it's not clear to me that the US can get to herd immunity because these new variants like the Delta variant coming your way, uh, it's already widespread in the, U- in the UK, uh, will get these people. And that's because it's just way more contagious than the original so-called misnamed wild variant. So that, that's, I think, a really important part of our, our story, that, that we've got a much, much worse information ecosystem than the Eisenhower administration had to contend with back in 1957 when a similar sized pandemic struck. I think the lesson for me, and it's an important lesson, uh, not only about information networks, but also about networks of travel and transportation, which are crucial in in a pandemic, is that one needs circuit breakers to be in place. Given that contagion produces these very disastrous outcomes in the biological or medical world, we need much better circuit breakers than we seem to have. Uh, There should have been a much earlier suspension of travel from Wuhan than happened. Uh, It was insane that flights were still leaving uh, direct flights to New York and San Francisco and major European capitals right down until January the 23rd. And that was uh, during the Chinese Lunar New Year holiday when enormous numbers of people were leaving Uh, Wuhan. So I I think the obvious uh, step that we need to take is to think much more about how we can have rapid circuit breakers so that the network can temporarily uh, uh, be uh, disrupted. The interesting thing about COVID is the super spreader feature that that has a low dispersion factor. 80% of the spreading is done by about 20% of the infected people. And, and if you could stop those super spreaders from doing their, their work in the early phase of the pandemic, then you had a pretty good shot at containment. So that's one obvious takeaway. The second and more tricky thing is what to do about the network platforms. I mean, they now clearly dominate the public sphere and they haven't really reformed themselves in any, in my view, meaningful way since since 2016. And there are lots of bad answers to this question, like, oh, let's have an antitrust campaign against them, which is the Biden administration's option. This isn't going to fix anything. I mean, it's a complete 
in my view, cul-de-sac to, to try and solve these problems with antitrust. Another wrong answer is let's just have a really powerful federal regulator that can can squeeze the big tech companies harder. That, again, is highly unlikely to work on the basis of, of historical experience. So I, I argue for a kind of double a combination punch that just increases the liability of the companies. I mean, you have to do something about Section 230 so that they don't simply plead uh, immunity every time anybody tries to sue them from a harm arising from content on the platform. And you need some kind of First Amendment right so that people can't be censored arbitrarily on political grounds. I think if both of those things had been in place, uh, the internet would have done a lot less harm than it did in 2020. Well, uh, Neil, I think we're nearing the end of our broadcast time today. I wanted to thank you very much for uh, joining us at the Manhattan Institute and for an excellent discussion. Uh, and I want to thank all of the viewers uh, who watched uh, Neil Ferguson's book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, is out now. You can get it uh, in, in all bookstores and on Amazon, of course. If you'd like to hear about uh, more conversation like today's, uh, or interested in supporting the Manhattan Institute or City Journal, you can subscribe to MI's newsletters, City Journal itself, of course, or consider making a donation. So thanks again, Neil, uh, and uh, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.